Listen, the rain is coming soon. And so that's why we wanted to bring you some lights in the morning so that you could still have your sunny sunshine that you want so bad. My name's Danny, and if you don't know it, uh, I'm excited about the rain. About 20% of this church is with me. Those are the people who, yep, there's 11 of us in this service right now. You will not stop us. We are coming for you. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for coming to the church. Thanks for being a part of, uh, yeah, just a Sunday morning experience to come and talk about God, talk about what it is he's doing in our community, in our world. And I believe in each of our lives individually, no matter where we are from, no matter where we're at in our spiritual journey, uh, we just want to be a, a church and a community that comes and sits before him and asks God, this is what I got. What do you want to do with it? Uh, the series we're in right now is called The Work, and uh, I have kind of a, a definition overall for the whole series, and this is it right here, I think. The Work is a series about empowering people to embody the work of Jesus outside the walls of the church. So often we think about the work of Jesus happening here, and, or even, even worse, happening here on stage or, or through a leader in a Bible study or through somebody other than ourselves. And this series is, we're hoping, going to break down those barriers and ask bigger questions about how do we be the kingdom of Jesus outside the walls of his church buildings. And that requires all of us to ask some really big questions about ourselves. And so today, we're going we're gonna to up the curiosity about what it looks like to be a person within the kingdom that is impacted by it and has a job to do within it. And I'm going to need you to just kind of travel with me as we talk this morning about uh, this work and this question. If all of this is true, that we're called to do the work, that we're called to step outside the walls of our church, here's my question. Why do so few of us do the work needed to be the people God desires us to be? Why do so few of us actually go out and do it? Why, why, why is it that that we have people on church staff or people with specific uh, jobs that we consider church workers and the rest of us, oftentimes, I'm, I'm being kind of general here, but oftentimes the rest of us are like, I'm just here to, to participate in that person's work and not in the work that God has called me to specifically. Now, when I give you the word work, uh, I'm, of, I'm of course talking about what it looks like to do spiritual things within the, the, the vocation or the job or the place that God has placed you. Uh, here's my definition for work. Work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish. And so that doesn't mean that, that, uh, that if you are retired and no longer getting a paycheck from a daily job that you still don't have work to do. That doesn't mean that if you're called to be a stay-at-home dad that you still don't have work to do. The work idea is about rearranging all the things within our story to participate in the kingdom that God is regularly advancing. Now, I think he does that through three primary ways that he kind of outfits uh, his workers for the kingdom. And I'm going to talk about those because I think they're really, really important for us to understand these primary ways that he outfits and why we often don't engage with the work that we're supposed to. So first, I'm going to break down these primary ways that God outfits his workers. And those things are known as gifts, callings, and anointings. Uh, we could do an entire series on each one of these. We could do eight weeks on gifts, eight weeks on callings, eight weeks on anointings. But that's not what we're going to do right now. We're just going to kind of give an, an overview of what they are and how they are so easily missed when it comes to the work God has called us to do. So start off with the gifts. The gift, the spiritual gift, gives you the ability. 
Jesus, the conquering king, descended to give spiritual gifts to men, it says in Ephesians. I don't know if a lot of people have put that together, that, that spiritual gifts happen and are received through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, 7, and 8. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. The spiritual gifts are given by grace and are not based on our worthiness, our personal abilities. They are given according to God's sovereign choice. He gives them to who he wants, when he wants. 1 Corinthians 12 says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The gifts are given by the Spirit of God. They are part of the new life granted to us in Christ and sometimes are drastically different from our perceived capabilities or desires prior to salvation. Meaning that sometimes we will be uh, in a situation or a season of life and we will actually receive a new gift, a new ability to, to, uh, to accomplish something that we would have never seen ourselves accomplishing prior to Jesus. And there's story after story after story of people experiencing this, of people getting insight, of people getting uh, kind of this, this new sense of who they were after they came to Christ and after they were curious with him about how their life was going to be used by him. Among some of the gifts listed in the Bible are, and I put them on the screen for you, this is just a few, prophecy, ministry, wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, teaching, exhorting, giving, my wife's spiritual gift of ruling, showing, mercy, <laughs> speaking in languages and interpreting languages. Anybody else? Anybody else married to a wife with the spiritual gift of ruling? Yeah? Yeah, just, just, just me. That's great. Thank you, Lord. That was so good. Uh, summary, the purpose of the gift. The purpose of the gift is really, really simple when you receive one. First Peter 4.11, it's in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The easiest way to, to really feel out if someone is using their gifts how they're supposed to is whether or not they're taking credit for it. If it benefits them, if it draws attention to them, if it is somehow exhorting them, then very most likely they are using something other than their spiritual gift because spiritual gifts always, always, always give glory to God. The next one is callings. The calling gives you your identity. Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. By the way, everybody that follows Jesus has spiritual gifts and everybody that follows Jesus has callings. So as I'm walking these out, just because you haven't discovered yours, maybe you're new to faith, maybe you just have kind of gotten sidetracked and stopped developing some of these things, these things are all applicable to every single person in this room and especially calling. It seems right now that everybody wants to know, I get this question a lot, what is my calling? They want to know what is the one grand purpose God has for me? The one dominant spiritual thing that I can do that will reach hundreds or thousands or millions of people. That's a real conversation I've had or at least do have a couple times a year. I think this is because in popular Christian culture, it is usually the people who find their niche and stay there for years who get the attention. So speaking, music, evangelists, and so on. And so people think that, well, in order for me to have a calling, it has to be something on a stage under lights, and it's just simply not true. 
As a matter of fact, the vast majority of believers are not called to a single groundbreaking ministry for their entire life. Instead, they are called to several, several different ways to minister to people depending on their stage of life, their spiritual maturity level, and the need of those around us. This is a really important thing to understand because a lot of people when they're asking about calling are really asking about how can I do something public that, that, that is obvious. And most of the callings that we have as Christians are not obvious to uh, anybody but the people that we're serving. And those are usually happening in whispers and in quiet places where God is the one, once again, who gets all the glory. We get caught up in calling because we see the word a lot in the New Testament. But I'll put this on the screen because it's important. When calling is used in the New Testament, and it's used a lot, it almost always refers to our calling as believers, not our calling to a specific ministry. An example would be Ephesians 1, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is highlighting this idea that you are called to be a participant in the kingdom, that we are all called to receive the riches of what it means to be a saint in the kingdom. It, it has nothing to do with a specific ministry and a specific way in which we are supposed to use the gifts that we had or have. We are ultimately called to fill the needs of the body, every person in this room. But that doesn't mean we'll have a single lifelong ministry to concentrate on, although sometimes that can happen. Ultimately, this is for everybody here, our calling is to love God, love others, obey God, and take care of others. That is everyone's calling in this room. And how that manifest depends, again, on season of life, uh, level of influence, level of intimacy. Uh, it's very situational, and it's very reliant on the Holy Spirit, which is why so very important for you to learn over the years of your spiritual development to hear him, because oftentimes it's an actual calling, like, hey, you should participate in this, and you just got this strong sense that you're like, mm, I think I'm supposed to be a part of this. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're supposed to be a pastor or an evangelist or a worship leader. It doesn't mean that you're supposed to do something necessarily under lights because those things are no bigger, no better, no shinier. They get no more glory than the other places when it comes to the kingdom. Now on earth, people love that stuff. But we're not talking about this, this uh, earthly view. We're talking about a kingdom view. And so you have a calling in the kingdom Hence, our identity lies within our relationship with Jesus and the level of intimacy that we have with him. You're about to see here in just a second when it comes to anointing really, really, really matters if you want to hear him well. If we concentrate on fulfilling the responsibilities that Jesus has given us now, God will take care of our impact on our world. Our job is to concentrate on being in relationship with him. And that leads me to the third one, anointings. The anointing gives you your power. This one, uh, I don't think you're allowed to have favorites. I think that's probably not very uh, scripturally sound. This one's definitely my favorite. Uh, just being honest, as a, as a human. Uh, I, I love working with people who want to be presenters, people who want to be orators or preachers. 
Um, but a big part of, of being uh, used by God in this position is whether or not you are anointed to do so. Because there's a lot of people who can talk really well. But you can tell the difference, I believe, between someone who is built to talk by Jesus and anointed with his power and someone else who just has the talent. And, and that's often what it means by anointing. The anointing is what enables you to fulfill the calling in a powerful way. It equips you to fulfill God's plan in your life. Anointed is not being skilled at a task at all. Instead, the anointing represents the Holy Spirit and subsequently the power of God and causes supernatural things to happen. And that's why sometimes when we're in a room like this and we're sharing and we're talking and, and it feels very, I don't know if you know this, but for me up here, this uh, all feels very conversational. Uh, I feel like every room at Kesed is different depending on who shows up and every service is different and every time I speak, it's different. And sometimes I'll just be sharing in the midst of a sermon with notes prepared, well prayed, prayed over, uh, developed, thought through, and I just get a strong, heavy sense to sit on a part of the message longer than I want to because I got other stuff to get to. And I feel like that's part of my anointing to rest and to give space for the Holy Spirit to work on, with, around, or through somebody in the audience that is important at that time. That, I believe, is when my anointing becomes more than just Danny has the ability to, to talk and be funny every once in a while. I think that all of us in our lives have spaces like that, where we, we go to work, we do what we do, we, we've refined a talent, we've gotten good at the job, and that could be parenting, that could be loving on our in-laws, that could be being a good neighbor, whatever it is. But when you can sit inside your anointing, there's a pause, there's a half second, oh, and I believe that's when the power kind of starts to generate and all of a sudden God's like, hey, I want to use you to do this thing. It's not really about you, so just let me be a conduit through you. Basically, get out of the way and do what I say. And he does that a lot with me. And it's a powerful thing to experience. And now I hope something you'll see in real time as it happens uh, on the stage because I think it's not just unique to me. I know it's not just unique to me. It's something we're all supposed to be experiencing. Now, all of that said, Christians who don't continually place themselves in the presence of Jesus through prayer and worship can, I believe, this is where some of you can kind of unpack this, you can do your study, but this is what I believe. I believe if you don't spend time with Christ, if you don't spend time in his word, if you are not connected to where he's at, I believe that you can actually lose that anointing. I didn't say lose your, your salvation. I, I'm not getting into any of that stuff. I'm talking about that influx of power and that sense of hearing. It's a lot like the difference between Saul and David. When, when God anoints Saul to be king, even though he tells the people, I don't think this is your guy. And they're like, no, this is our guy. He's so tall and handsome. Says a lot about tall and handsome, doesn't it? Have you ever thought about that? <clears throat> yeah. You know what it says about David? That he was ruddy. Mm. I don't even know what that means. But apparently it's the opposite of tall and handsome. The anointing shifts to David as a shepherd boy. And David, as the anointed king, goes back to doing his shepherding stuff. Because it's not time for him to do the refined talent or job. But there is now a new king. He's just out in the field with sheep and goats. And Saul throughout his life struggles until finally he is killed and David 
assumes the throne, but that anointing shifts, and I think it has to do with time with God. Remember when we're told in Acts that uh, there were some other ruddy boys that were making a mess around the world. Acts 4, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. It's about as close to ruddy as you can get, I think. And it says they were astonished. Why were they astonished? Look what it says. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The word Christ literally means the anointed one. So when you're with the anointed one, guess what happens? It gets on you. Like you smell like him. You experience him. You're filled with that power of his presence. And suddenly you are moving inside your day-to-day world. A common, everyday person being used in a powerful way. But apparently it very much is connected to how well you're connected to Jesus. Many, many Christians, many Christians have no overflowing presence of Jesus in their lives because they are never themselves in the presence and so power of Jesus. There is simply no heart devotion and so little to no empowering anointing. Those are the three primary tools that that were given, gifts, callings, and anointings. If I was to sum them all up, kind of tie them all together, this is how I would say it. In summary, anointing is the supernatural power from God to use your gifts within your calling to fulfill God's purpose in your life. This is how the Spirit seems to move. This is what Scripture seems to say needs to be in place for you and I to do the work that we are called to do. And if any of these are out of alignment or underdeveloped or just not at all invested in, then it makes total sense why often we feel like we aren't really participating in the work. Now I want to tell you why. I believe people miss experiencing these things, gifts, callings, and anointings, not because they are hard to discover, but because they refuse to sit in obedience and travel the needed path. I've taught this before. Uh, I think it's... uh, I think it's when Joshua is entering into the promised land and he's nervous to follow in Moses' footsteps. And he's like, God, I don't think I can do this. This is a kind of a big job. And God's like, Joshua, listen, just do this, just do this, just do this, just do this. And then he says, if you obey and do all the things that I'm asking you to do, you will find success. I believe, that's, I believe it's one of the only times God himself defines success. And it's directly tied to being obedient. I think people lack spiritual uh, depth and spiritual flavor and, and basically they're underdeveloped in either their callings, anointings or gifts or one or the other or maybe all, not because they're hidden somewhere out there, but because they're not willing to be obedient and they're not willing to sit in that place. They don't want to sit in long enough for God to show up and say, okay, now I can work with you. Now I can work with you. By the way, if you want to know, obedience happens in areas we don't want to give up. For those of you who just love certain things, you're just natural at certain things, and then you leverage those things over other people as obedience, that's not obedience. That's enjoyment. That's hobby. That's just you with some gifts and talents. Obedience generally only happens around things that we're really struggling that we want to do. We just don't want to. We just aren't interested. 
And so we have to decide, am I going to be disobedient and do what I want? Or am I going to be obedient and do what the Lord wants? Another way this is described is by Christ as the narrow road. Matthew chapter 7, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. This is why obedience is so important because staying on the narrow road is where the work before the work happens and nobody wants to stay there. There's just too many exits. There's too many opportunities. There's too many wide paths. I think the interesting thing about following Jesus on the narrow road, this is how I envision this, is that there would only be enough space for like, one person in front of another, meaning I always have to follow Jesus because, well, there's no room for me to come up beside him. But the wide road, I don't think necessarily the wide road is all about evil and all about all this darkness. I think the wide road is just wide enough for me to walk up alongside Jesus and then every once in a while lead myself. There's enough room. There's a passing lane, basically. And so often we still do the same stuff. We just do it how we want to do it. I mean, we still show up to church, but then we judge it because, you know, it's not quite how I would do it if I was in charge, but I guess these guys don't really know. Same thing in our marriage. Be honest. You're like, meh, that's not really how I would do it, spouse. You know, I mean, if you want to do it that way, you can, but I don't really think it's that important. Or any other relationship or friendship we have, we love passing lanes because we love to be in front, even of Jesus. And the narrow road doesn't allow that. This is where the work before the work has to happen. Gifts, callings, and anointings cannot be fully experienced unless we stay on the narrow path. And this is why so few people are living content and fulfilled lives of meaning within the kingdom. And why so many refuse to do the work needed to be the people God desires them to be. So here's my provocative statement. And when it really starts to get a little bit of... Curious. No one has ever blown up their own lives without first deciding to go and get a license. This is this idea of, of this is a this is a therapeutic uh, concept that I learned quite a while ago. That basically every time I take an exit off the narrow road, I I do it through a way of thinking that gives me permission to take that exit. So basically, what what licensing looks like is me having a really hard day at work. And I'm just being illustrative right now. This is not actually me, but let's just say me having a really hard day at work and dealing with all kinds of stress and coming home to my wife and children and they don't understand what I'm dealing with and I need time to cool down with the guys. So I'm going to spend most of my evening at the bar because they just don't get it. This is the same way that a lot of us are like, I don't have a very fulfilled marriage. You don't understand what it's like to be, to, 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 to have to live your life next to this person and, and I need connection. And so that's why I do pornography or so on or so on or so on. And it could be nuanced. It could be down to just pride and control. Well, my spouse doesn't really have the ability to make those sort of decisions. So I just make them for her because you don't understand what it's like to be married to someone who just can't make decisions. These are all ways in which we get a license. And then when we want to make poor decision, we use our license to get permission to go off the narrow road, leaving the gifts, callings, and anointings behind and instead developing into Danny's life and what Danny wants with Danny at the center of it all. 
which oftentimes feels pretty good at the beginning, doesn't it? I mean, who wouldn't want to be center of the universe where everything just kind of bends to your will? There's a man named Solomon that I think highlights this better than anybody else. Solomon uh, came into the world very different than his father, David, the ruddy one, who got into the kingship through suffering. He lived in a cave for a long time. He was hunted like an animal. He was, he was broke down and rebuilt by God. And then God walked through some poor decisions that David made and eventually gave him a son called Solomon. And David, because of his relationship with God, wanted to build God a temple, a massive, beautiful, world-altering temple. And God's like, no, you've made some poor decisions and you've got some pretty bloody hands. Instead, I promise I'll use your son Solomon. And so when Solomon is born, from the time he's little all the way up, David is pouring into his life, you're special, you're gonna do amazing things, wait till you see what God does with your life, totally different road, totally different road than his dad. And so Solomon grows up thinking, you know what? I'm going to do everything my dad asked me to do because he is the one connected to God and I'm going to be connected to God and I'm going to do even better than my dad. And so David builds a palace for his family. It's a pretty legit palace. And David marries just a few too many women because you can't ever underestimate the ruddy man. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Especially the ruddy man with power. And so David does all these things, and Solomon watches as an 8-year-old, and then a 10-year-old, and then a 15-year-old, and then, a, and then a, a young adult. And he watches, and he watches, and he watches, and then eventually it's his time to rule. And he just explodes on the scene with this temple. And you can go look it up if you want. This is an image of what they think the temple looked like. They called it one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. People from everywhere came to see what this kid built. And he was legit about it. And time and time again, he was impressed with himself and his calling. There's one description of a visitor that came. I just want you to put yourself in Solomon's shoes and imagine somebody comes over to your house for a a week to come and just spend time with you because they heard how powerful you are and how wise you are and how, how impacting you are. And so they come over and she happens to be a queen, 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon... She came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions, having a very great retinue and camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from Solomon that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants and their clothing, and his cupbearers and their clothing, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, listen to this description. There was no more breath in her. Question, how much would a man have to accomplish to take away the breath of a queen? The answer is a lot. And this man did it, not just in the eyes of queens, but also kings. Second Chronicles, thus King Solomon excelled all all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. This man was a cut above everyone on the planet. And yet, after all this, Solomon, like so many, runs his life straight off a cliff. 1 Kings 11, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Remember, Solomon was all about doing things better than his dad. 
And that included the wives he basically collected. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses. This man was an overachiever in every way. And not only did he have 700 wives, but he also went ahead and included their friends, for he had 300 concubines. Bring a pal, he said. This is the, <laughs> this is the wedding where you could, you could bring a friend and she could be part two. It's very inclusive that way. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after the gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. And then here it is, as was the heart of David his father. I can barely handle the one princess I'm married to. I cannot fathom trying to manage 700. I don't know why this man thought that he could participate in this way until you really stop and think about the principle once again of licensing. It seems because of his calling, because of his specialness, because of the ways in which life was poured into him, and because he built one of the seven wonders of the world, Solomon's life was one justified violation after another. This is the license of accomplishment. The license being thinking that he had arrived by looking at all he had built. The license is most easily identified when we start living out what God once called us to instead of what God is calling us toward. It's saying, look at all the things I've built. Look at all the things I've done. Because of all this and because it's so much more than you've ever done, I'm going to go ahead and be privileged, take what I want from where I want so that I can, you know, appreciate me. So many people live out of what God has done through them in the past and ride on those coattails. The problem is, of course, the focus is on you and not on God. And in the end, it is an exit for destruction. There's people in this room for sure. You're living right now on a license of accomplishments. You've taught all the studies. You've done all the things. You follow Jesus longer than I've been alive. Just really respectfully, so what? So what? You still have a job to do. You still have a God to serve. And you still have stuff to learn. And my hope is, is that you can get off that, uh, that exit rest stop and back onto that narrow road of seeing what God wants to do with your gifts, talents, and callings. This is not the most common license issued when it comes to blowing up one's life, though. We know the story of the prodigal son and uh, this idea that there was a dad with two sons and uh, the younger son came to the dad and said, listen, I just wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. I don't believe in this family or anything else. I'm out. And for some reason, the father said, okay. And he gives the son his inheritance. And his son goes off into the world and over a very short season just loses it all to, to all kinds of evil darkness, all kinds of self-soothing ways. The son uh, goes and becomes a, a pig uh, feeder, and he's so hungry at one point in the story, it says he wishes he could eat the food he was feeding the pigs for it was better than what he was feeding himself with. And so he decides to repent, and he says, I'm, I'm going home. So he goes home, and his father sees him from a long way off, and it's a picture of all of us coming back to God, right? And the father runs to him, which culturally for a father to run in a robe at this time meant he would have to lift his robe in great humility and run to his son. But that's what it says that he does. 
And he runs to his son and he scoops him up and he's like, my son is alive. And he says, kill the fatted calves. We're celebrating. And a giant party happens. It's a beautiful story. Now I want to talk about who in the story takes the license. Now his older son was in the field, the older brother, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat goat, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, the father, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It seems because of the older brother's sacrifice, because he stayed and he was, he was pious about it, that he felt he no longer needed to do the work. And so he took the exit. This is the license of paid cost. This is the license of when you feel like you've paid enough. You didn't go off and devour anybody's inheritance. You didn't go off and make choices everybody else did. You've been doing it the right way for a long time. And it's about time you receive some fruit for that. And yet, Jesus is constantly teaching to this person. Matthew 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not pay cost in public to get glory and credit for the cost. Do not demand the fattened calf, but instead serve as God has built you. It requires a long, long, dark-looking Uh, gaze into one's soul to find yourself in a place where you can be honest about where you have been manipulated by your own heart. Where you have served and gave and even obeyed, not really for the sake of the Father's love, but so that you can be the one who stands out as better than everybody else. Just quick confession. I have been the older brother many more times than I have been King Solomon. On many, many nights and many ways, I have felt like I have paid enough cost. The problem is that every time I allow this, every time, eventually I begin to worship the hurt instead of the healer. I begin to worship what my life has accomplished through the Holy Spirit, and I begin to take credit for it as something Danny did. Time and time again, I have had to set down my older brother posture. Because it's never been about me. It's always been about my God. I see the same cycles in others who carry long-held pain like I did. Especially church-hurt people who say, you don't know what I've paid. You don't know what I've been through. I served, I helped, I was on the board, I gave money, I participated, and the whole thing went sideways. And I'm saying, yep, been there. And I don't know the cost you've paid. What I do know is that God does. And he is inviting us 
not to take the exit, but to stay on the narrow road of relationship with him to allow our gifts, callings, and anointings to be used to do the work, to put down the license of accomplishment, but look what I've already done, or cost, but look what I've already paid, and to instead embrace him and the gifts, callings, and anointings he is offering. He is a good God who wants to use your life in a good way, and frankly, the only reason that it's not happening right now, if you feel that, is because of you. So you got to stop and ask these big questions. Are you older brother in it? Are you King Solomon yet? Solomonin in? <laughs> are you somewhere in between? Are you a mix of both? Are you one in the morning and another one at night? When do you just get to be you? When do you just get to say, hey, God, I'm Danny. Here I am. I'd love for you to use whatever you want to use in my life. I recognize that means I probably got to pay some costs I don't want to pay, and I probably got to have some accomplishments I don't want to give away. I recognize that there's going to be lots of exits that look really enticing to me, really comforting, really soothing to me that I'm going to have to set down in order to follow you and you alone. But I'm here to tell you the beautiful thing about following Jesus on the narrow road. I believe this in my whole heart is there's hard days, there's steep days, there's decline days, there's rainy days, there's stormy days, but there is always a campfire at the end of the day where it's just you and Jesus talking about what it is this world needs and him encouraging you to Pick up your mantle and engage in it again. This series goes nowhere beyond this talk if we're not willing to do the work inside ourselves. And that's what I'd like to invite you to do now. So uh, I'm going to have the worship team come out. I'm going to pray over you. And then just we're going to spend some time reflecting on this and uh, seeing what God wants to do with it. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, In this room right now, there is a lot of stirring. There is some uncomfortable emotional shifting. I think there might even be some escaping, some people who are like, nope, this isn't for me, but you've got them by the shoelace, Lord, and you're not gonna let them out. There's some people who are excited, some people who are sad, some people who are grieved and convicted. But most of all, Lord, there are just people who want to live lives content and whole, filled with your presence, accomplishing the work you've designed them to accomplish. You are a good God, and so we receive this time of reflection in your name. Amen. I'm going to ask that we all stand as we sing this song together today to close out our morning, okay? I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. And all my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God sing all my life cause all my life you have been faithful yes you have God and all my life you have been so so good with every breath that I am able oh I will sing 
of the goodness of God. I love your voice, cause it has led me through the fire, and in darkest nights, you are close like no other. Oh, I've known you as a father, and I've known you as a friend, and I have lived in the goodness of God. Sing all my life, church, come on. And all my life you have been. Oh, yes, you have. of God. Sing all my life again. Come on. Cause all my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able. How I will sing of the goodness Thank you guys so much for coming and joining us here this morning. We hope that you guys have an awesome afternoon. 
You guys just head on out. We hope to see you next week. And thank you again for coming and joining us here at Kessid.